On the way towards Queen's Park, Ontario's legislature in Toronto, a fatherly-looking statue of a man is locked in purposeful stride, as if to greet you. This is John A. Macdonald, often fondly remembered as the father of Confederation, Canada's first prime minister, famous for bringing the two Canadas upper and lower together. Let us be English, or let us be French, but above all, let us be Canadians, he said. He is also the architect of Canada's assimilation policy towards Indigenous people, and said, and I apologize for the language because it's vile, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. And though he may learn to read or write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself, as the head of the department, that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. Some 2,200 miles away, on the banks of the Assiniboine River in Winnipeg, stands a youngish man waving a document. This is Louis Riel, Métis leader who led two popular governments, the founder of the province of Manitoba, and the leader of two rebellions against what he saw as a threat to his people from the rest of Canada. He said, I am more convinced every day that without a single exception I did right. And I have always believed that, as I have acted honestly, the time will come when the people of Canada will see and acknowledge it. Following Rael's execution for treason, MacDonald said, He will die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favour. Turns out, there were more than just two Canadas. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk about truth and reconciliation with Winnipeg Mayor Brian Bowman and Saskatoon Mayor Charlie Clark at a time when Canada's urban Indigenous population is growing. And we speak to Dr. Afua Cooper, author, associate professor at Dalhousie University, and James Robinson Johnson Chair in Black Canadian Studies about the real roots of our Canadian cities. But first, local history writer and founder of the Toronto Dreams Project, Adam Bunch, takes us through some of the most problematic landmarks in Toronto and the truly uncomfortable people they pay homage to. Stand by. So, Adam, uh, a lot in the news recently, uh, conversations that we're having about uh, history and, uh, and how we represent that history in public spaces. And uh, that sort of uh, convinced you to, to take a little walking tour of Toronto to some of our own Canadian and, and Toronto founding fathers. Uh, uh, what, what sort of uh, caused you to, to take that tour? Well, just that, that has been in the news recently. Uh, and I've been writing about the history for long enough that I just happened to have, you know, a bit of a backlog of knowledge about the stories behind some of the statues that might not be so well, uh, some of them good, and a lot of them with a dark side too, uh, especially right now, I thought it might be 
uh, a good moment, helpful to head out and yeah, maybe illuminate the dark side of a few of the statues that uh, people pass by every day without probably giving much of a second thought to. Yeah, and there is some uh, some very dark sides to the, some of these people. Uh, can you tell me first about uh, Peter Russell? Yeah, Russell's a big one. He, he, uh, John Graves Simcoe was the governor who founded Toronto. When he went back home, Russell filled in for a while as the interim governor. He was one of the, the founding families of Toronto, were the Russells, uh, and one of the slave-owning families of Toronto, uh, which is definitely a part of the history of the city that tends to get forgotten, is that when the city was founded, there were about 15 black slaves living in the city itself, another 10 just on the other side of the Don Valley. Uh, Russell uh, enslaved a family called the Pompadours, Peggy, her children, Jupiter, Amy, and Millie, uh, and the father also stayed with them, though he was a paid servant. Uh, and slavery was being gradually abolished, but anyone who was born in slavery was going to be uh, staying in slavery for the rest of their lives. Uh, so the Russells, yeah, kept those four people in slavery in what's now downtown Toronto. Uh, and Russell actually thought he was going to get a statue for the work he was doing. He developed a lot of infrastructure, had uh, Danforth build a new road toward Kingston, and thought uh, the people were going to erect a statue to his memory uh, uh, in honor of his work. But in the end, he didn't get a statue, but he does still have uh, street names uh, that we remember him through. Peter Street is for Peter Russell. Russell Hill Road uh, is sort of where their country estate was, too. Mm -hmm. And John Graves Simcoe himself was uh, opposed to slavery, but later on, uh, in a military capacity, was sent to to keep down slave uprisings in in other colonies in, in the Commonwealth. Yeah, Simcoe's relationship with slavery is a very weird and complicated one, where before he came to Toronto, before he founded Toronto, he said quite clearly that he was opposed to slavery. He gave speeches in the House of Commons in England about it. He said he would never assent to a law that was racist in that way. Uh, but when he got here, one of the first things he did was uh, name people to his legislative council, which worked a bit like the Senate does today, and he named a majority of them to be slave owners or from slave-owning families. Uh, so when he tried to get a law passed to abolish slavery, he was forced into a compromise uh, that no one who was born in slavery would be, f sorry, who was already a slave would be free. Anybody who was newly born into slavery would have to stay a slave until they were 25. So he didn't actually free any slaves. He just gradually started the process of abolishing it. And then after his time in Upper Canada and founding Toronto, the British government sent him to Haiti uh, to take charge of the British troops there who were trying to put down the Haitian Revolution, which was the biggest slave uprising since Spartacus. Half a million slaves fighting for their freedom, uh, which they did eventually get, and that led to the founding of the modern country of Haiti. Uh, but Simcoe spent a few months leading the troops in the opposite direction, fighting to preserve the institution he had always said he hated. And uh, a charge that I, I think is fair that's often made to our, our public school system in Canada is that we don't really talk about how slavery was even a thing, uh, even as prevalent as it seems to be in, in a place like Toronto. Uh, what was the historical context of slavery in, in Canada? There had been slaves for almost as long as there had been European settlers, as well as uh, slaves within indigenous communities, nations too. Uh, I do think it's easy, especially when you're 
talking to school children to want to focus on the part that makes Canada look good and Toronto look good. We were an important hub at the end of the Underground Railroad. That is an important part of our history and I think we like to focus on that and Harriet Tubman and those stories and less so on the dark side, which did have a history that stretched back for hundreds of years in Canada before it was abolished here and we became a relatively safe haven for American escaping slaves. Mm -hmm. And I want to return to that that uh, idea of glossing over, but uh, a, a couple more things that uh, you found on, on your tour, uh, that you mentioned on your tour, rather, is um, we have uh, statues commemorating uh, two wars, uh, which are we were arguably on the wrong side of it, most notably the, the Boer War, right in the middle of uh, University Avenue. We have this very large... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this large um, celebration of, of the people that, that went and fought in that, uh, as they called the Boer War. Yeah, it is one of the most spectacular monuments in the city, the giant monolith at uh, Queenie University with statues at the base, commanding position with fountains, the whole thing. Uh, yeah, to remember a war uh, that was pretty baldly a British war of imperialism trying to control South Africa, uh, both fought against both the Boers, who were European-descended settlers, and the indigenous population of South Africa, uh, which was a deeply brutal war. It's the war that the term concentration camp was invented during. Tens of thousands of people died of uh, disease and starvation in the concentration camps. Uh, and there were Canadians there, Torontonians there, fighting alongside the British. Is still a staunchly loyal British city run by the staunchly British and Protestant Orange Order, largely. Uh, and they are the people who are in charge of commemorating events for much of our history. So the events they commemorated and chose to celebrate are frequently ones that were British, imperial, uh, and sometimes bloody wars of conquest. As well, we have a memorial uh, to, to the people who fought against uh, Louis Riel. Louis Riel himself uh, is someone who is commemorated, uh, I'm thinking especially uh, spectacularly in, in Winnipeg, places like that. Uh, but uh, he, he's, he's largely thought of a, com a father of confederation at this point, but, uh, but uh, we, we have a monument uh, to the people who fought against him. Yeah, which I think is... Yeah, very similar to the South African War Memorial that we have. It's sort of tucked away on the side of Queen's Park. It's easy to miss. Uh, but I think it had very similar reasons that people at the time thought of it as a imperialism and colonialism as a good thing uh, and were proud to have fought against indigenous people and Louis Riel, who's now regarded as a uh, large and mostly regarded as a positive figure in Canadian history for his resistance against that imperialism and expanding colonialism uh, in Canada. So it is like definitely a bizarre and one of the ones that most clearly seems out of date now that Louis Rail is somebody we've tried to embrace in the story of our nation and it shows maybe a bit how awkward and complicated that is uh, that it's hard to claim him in that context and still have monuments dedicated to, I mean, in the end, killing him. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a little bit conflicted. Um, and, and to that con conflict and the way we like to think of ourselves in Toronto and in Canada uh, broadly, um, 
you know, a lot of your writing is about uncovering the history that's hiding in plain sight. You you take these walking tours and and you write about these monuments and these street dedications. Um, but uh, I, I don't. I personally don't see that we're teaching the controversy. I, I don't hear uh, these sides of the story, except from people like you, who, who do uh, present uh, you know, all sides of the story and, and even the ugly side that we maybe don't like to think about. As a historical writer, what, what are the value of these things, or, or is there sort of a value to thinking about them in a different way and maybe challenging their, their presence? I think certainly we've grown up with a lot of myths about our country and our city. We've also grown up with, I mean, in large part, hearing just one side of the story. The side of the story that's been told uh, since Toronto was founding has generally been the old white dude side of the story uh, and not any of the many other sides of the stories uh, that have uh, been told uh, but not necessarily heard by the entire city or the entire country. Uh, you know, those statues might mean one thing to, uh, you know, white guys in particular and something very different to, oh, say, the indigenous people those white guys were killing. Uh, very painful stuff. Yeah, uh, I don't have to do that myself, but I can't imagine that walking by them every day, guys raised up on pedestals who now are more and more being acknowledged as, in some cases, like McDonald's standing outside Queen's Park, architects of genocide uh, against people who are still very much here and thriving nations living in downtown Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, not extinct people living or living somewhere else. Uh, that we shouldn't be concerned about. And I think this is an important time in our history, uh, maybe an important crossroads that we are now hopefully hearing and paying more attention to those voices we've been neglecting, indigenous people, other people of color, other women. Uh, and I think it's going to be a complicated conversation and complicated decision-making about which if any monuments to keep or get rid of and how we're going to add context to them potentially, uh, how commemoration is going to work going forward. I think it's a very important conversation to have in Canada, in Toronto. It's not just an American thing. It's not just, you know, the Civil War is not the only bad thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. It's important, I think, to seize the opportunity and just take the opportunity to listen. Listen to what the priorities of people who aren't white guys are uh, and hopefully learn and grow and move forward from there. And I'd like to pivot uh, now that I have you here. By the time uh, listeners are, are putting this in their earbuds, uh, you will have had a book come out. Can you tell me about the Toronto Book of the Dead? Yeah, it uh, covers the whole history of Toronto from a time before the Europeans showed up, before the founding of the city, all the way till pretty much now, uh, telling the story of the city through the uh, stories of its most fascinating, hopefully, and illuminating deaths. Uh, so every chapter tells a different death-related story, arching from yeah, First Nations burial grounds, from the Wendat, from hundreds of years before Europeans showed up, all the way up to uh, downtown skyscrapers and falling lawyers and modern day death. And you can find Adam's book, Toronto Book of the Dead, for sale now at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West. Now, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's findings were a call to action for Canadian leaders at every level of government. 
As well, it added the phrase cultural genocide to common conversation in describing the legacy of bad faith, abuse, and broken treaties the original inhabitants of this land suffered under what we now call Canada. It's a phrase that should chill any rational, ethical, or empathetic person to the core. We asked two sitting Canadian mayors about what the Commission's findings mean to them, and how cities can and must work to undo generations of cultural and sometimes literal violence. First, let's hear from Mayor Brian Bowman of Winnipeg. Well, it's it's part of having a creating the the environment for a respectful debate and conversation about um, about who we are as a people um, and understanding uh, our, our history. I mean, the the first um, the first thing that you need to do is obviously uh, have uh, discussions based on truth, and uh, that's really the the legacy of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is providing that truth to Canadians uh, that. Uh, then put us in the position of, okay, how are we going to respond to those calls to action? And so um, we've taken the, the calls to action and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to heart. We've just implemented uh, and created the first ever Winnipeg Indigenous Accord. Uh, and we continue to, to work very, very hard on reconciliation efforts. Louis Riel, I mean, very controversial figure, but the, the father of, of, of Manitoba's, uh, the creation of Manitoba. And uh, his statue is, is one that I hope... Um, all Manitobans uh, take pride in uh, whether or not they're indigenous or not. Uh, his uh, his statue is in a very a very significant place of honor on the legislative grounds. Um, you know, obviously facing the river because uh, the, the the river system was was commerce and trade. And um, you know, but uh, uh, certainly we're going to have those debates about uh, how we reflect our history. But also, what I'm really focused in on is. How do we build bridges between communities so that we can move forward together, um, you know, especially in the world in which we're living in right now, mm-hmm. where there are uh, those voices of division in our community and around the world that seek to exploit differences uh, rather than do the heavy lifting, which is building bridges and bringing people together. And how Winnipegers responded to the um, the McLean's article that came out a few years ago that um, branded Winnipeg the most racist city in Canada uh, Winnipeggers responded uh, and dealt with it head on, and I've I've never been more proud to be a Winnipegger than I've been over the last few years because the the comp- the the community rallied and continues to rally to respond and to to uh, now become a, a leader in in Canada's uh, reconciliation efforts, and that's because of the hard work of grassroots organizations and uh, and others in the community. And Winnipeg is poised to set an example because I believe it's the highest population of urban indigenous yeah. people. Yeah, we. I mean, we welcome newcomers from all over the world and it's uh, our greatest strength as a community. But absolutely, we have the highest per capita indigenous community of any major Canadian city. And so that that presents uh, a tremendous opportunity uh, for uh, for Canadians. And uh, we're trying to set a good example. We're trying to learn from other cities. There are many other Canadian cities are doing great work. Uh, when uh, you look at cities like Edmonton and, you know, Sas- Saskatoon and, you know, and Calgary, I mean, the, the city after city is, is doing their part. And Canada's big city mayors are in many ways leading in, in terms of Canada's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And here's Saskatoon Mayor Charlie Clark. Well, we've been really fortunate in Saskatoon. We have uh, the Office of the Treaty Commissioner. 
there, uh, which has been a tremendously valuable organization in helping, you know, there's a long history that they have had with, with both working on the implementation of treaty in, in the modern era, but, but also developing educational materials and, and networks and partnerships uh, for even since before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Commission came along. And, um, and so now that they have, uh, the Office of Treaty Commissioner has been working with the city of Saskatoon, uh, the Tribal Council, the Canadian Central Urban Métis Federation, um, and a number of other organizations to establish something called Reconciliation Saskatoon. And it's quite a grassroots uh, group uh, that has now got over 50 organizations signed up to it. And, and that includes companies like Potash Corp and, and service clubs like Rotary and the school systems and the health system and uh, uh, you know a, a whole range of different um, groups from the many faith the churches, United Church, Mennonite Church, other church groups and um, a Medea Muslim community is working with Reconciliation Saskatoon and different cultural organizations. So I'm working with them as mayor to to help be a bridge to um, invite more and more people into that conversation. Um, we are going to be having a, a pledge project um, where we're going to be inviting Saskatoon citizens to to make their pledge as to what their path of reconciliation is is going to to look like. Um, uh, as council, we have been working with the Saskatoon Tribal Council on a number of initiatives. Uh, including economic development initiatives like b building a um, hydropower project at the uh, on our river where there's already a weir so it's we've already have a uh, a dam kind of uh, operating but without any without any power production we we're looking in in partnering with the tribal council to do that um, and uh, as well as as uh, some work around our procurement models and other things that can help with economic um, with employment opportunities so um, yeah there's a there's there's a very intentional and growing network of people who are are talking and and learning and and figuring out the path to reconciliation together this isn't a conversation about the past and and this isn't something that you just sort of um, you know, have have the national apology and then it's all over. But that it actually the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, are are a, a call for us to to really think through what the journey is from from there, from the apology, and 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 towards what it means to actually figure out what in Saskatoon we're on Treaty Six territory, um, a treaty that was signed in 1867. Between uh, between many First Nations in the re in the area and the Crown, and it's based on the concept of living in right relationship in this land. The treaty elders uh, have uh, have sort of stated that this was the spirit and intent of of the treaty. We have to now figure out what that looks like after generations of of not living up to the treaty uh, relationship and in fact having a, a much more patriarchal and uh, and damaging relationship between the settler community the the um, and uh, and the indigenous community so it takes it will take time and 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 even generations to figure out what that what that new relationship looks like but as Canadians I think it's one of our our most important um, uh, priorities to to sort out how how we're going to do that and to be intentional about it and to realize we we won't know until we get there we have to learn as we go. Mm -hmm.
And you'll hear more from both Mayor Bowman and Clark, who we sat down with during this year's Canoe Summit in Winnipeg, in coming episodes. Now, Dr. Afua Cooper is Jamaican-born Canadian, dub poet, award-winning historian, honorary Kentucky colonel, I could go on. Her primary research is African-Canadian studies, including the little-discussed history of slavery in this country. And we reached her over the phone in Halifax. So, Dr. Cooper, first I wanted to uh, ask you uh, about uh, your research, which uh, focuses primarily on uh, on uh, African-Canadian studies and especially the uh, slavery era in Canada, uh, because I think a lot of Canadians would be surprised to hear that there was, in fact, slavery in Canada. We don't really talk about it and, and we don't really teach it in schools in, in, the, in the way that we should. Um, so can you exp- can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes, um, because even today, even last month, um, two people who were educated people, right, two of the most educated people in Canada, um, told me that there was no slavery in Canada. And I, I, I was shocked. I was appalled because I thought all the work that I've done and other scholars have done over the past, so many years, it's still mm-hmm. not, um, maybe not making the impact. Um, so, yes, there was slavery in Canada. Um, it was a dominant condition for black people from 16, from about 1628 to 1833, when the British Parliament abolished slavery in all of its overseas colonies. Um, especially in the older colonies of what we we call Canada, you know, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, Quebec, and Ontario. These are the sort of five original older colonies. And slavery was a fact of life mm-hmm. and, and the enslavement of Africans. And um, the, the, the records are legion. There are thousands and thousands of um, pieces of documents that pertain to this. Books have been written. I myself wrote a, a book uh, called The Hanging of Angelique, Canada's Slavery and the Burden of Old Montreal, which looks at um, the, the court trial of Marie-Joseph Angelique, an enslaved black woman who was accused of burning down Montreal in 1734. Amani Whitfield, a uh, professor at the University of Vermont, just wrote a book called North to Bondage, Loyalist Slavery in the Maritimes. Last year, that book was published. Uh, there are numerous articles. Marcel Trudel, of course, in um, 1961, called Francais, uh, uh, which talks about the, the institution, and he gives names of enslaved people and their slaveholders, all the leading families um, held slaves in all of the major Canadian cities. And and the countryside, the farms. There's a, a scholar here in Nova Scotia called Katie Couture Robbins. She looks at a loyalist um, plantation in the Annapolis Valley in, in Nova Scotia uh, with Colonel um, Ruggles, who held enslaved Africans. So I don't know what else we, we can do. To, right. Um, you know, at, at this point, I think it's, it's a kind of enforced ignorance. Mm-hmm. People want to believe that there was no slavery because it makes them comfortable because people like myself and others are shattering their, their, this comfortable image 
of Canada that they've held. It's almost like part of their identity, and they don't want that to be um, to be disturbed in any way. Right. And beyond slavery and, and that sort of dark uh, history that we have in, in Canada, we have had prominent uh, black neighborhoods in, in multiple Canadian cities that have been effectively erased. I'm thinking of Africville in Halifax and, uh, and the Hogan's Alley community of Vancouver that was erased uh, during the, the 60s um, when they built the viaduct over there. Can you tell me about a little bit about these communities and, and what we've lost? Well... Well, you know, Africville was a self-sustaining community for over 150 years. And, and when it was erased, you know, in the latter part of the decade of the 60s, I mean, the last house went down, was bulldozed in 1972. The thing is, Africville is still with us. And what I mean by that, um, there is an Africville genealogical society mm-hmm. that and, and, and supporters that that uh, these folks are still keeping this issue of dispossession on the agenda. But why I, what I also mean when I say Africa is still with us is that the UN report, which, which came out, it's been on the news yesterday and Monday, the UN report, the human rights report pertaining to African Canadians also talked about Africa, talked about the, the destruction of Africa, talked about the maltreatment of African Canadians as a whole in this country talk about the disproportionate rate of um, incarceration and um, a black showing up in the arrest statistics and black children living in poverty. Um, all of that, the UN United Nations report um, is talking about right now as we speak. So Africville was erased because the city of Halifax said they wanted to appropriate the land, the Africville land, for industrial use. No, the great irony or, you, you, you know, the cruel paradox in all of this is that they did not use it for industrial use. After they bulldozed people and maybe gave people $200, $100, $400, $100, they used the land for a dog park. Right. An off-leash dog park. So what that um, is saying to us is that they wanted to remove black bodies. Because when you look at the literature, the newspaper articles at the time of Africa removal, that's what basically said. They call it, you know, black spots, eyesore, soon this eyesore will be gone, uh, so on and so forth. So it wasn't really about the development of the city or industrial development. It was to dispossess black people, put them in public housing, because that's what happened to many of them, even though not all of them. And... um, keep black people marginalized at the bottom of the socioeconomic status. And when I said Africville was a self-sustaining community, African villagers were not on welfare. They were not on welfare. When their livelihood was taken away from them and they put them in the public housing in Union Square and Mulgrave Park, you'll find many people now going on, on, on the system for, uh, for, for, for support. We um, and and so Africville is still a story that must be dealt with. The the justice of it is still yet to be affirmed, and it won't go away because Black Nova Scotians and Black Canadians at large will ensure that justice is done, not only for the descendants of the the, the original 
uh, people who were dispossessed was for all Canadians. Now, when we go on to Hogan's Alley, the, the viaduct was built, the community there was destroyed in, in, Georgia, in, in British Columbia. And then guess what now we're hearing? We're in recent times, we, the, the, the city of Vancouver is saying, oh, the viaduct was a waste of time. It really hasn't lived up to its potential. It's mm -hmm. not being used in the way we thought. You know, they, they imagine it was going to divert traffic, it was going to ease traffic downtown. And now they're saying, we're going to take down the viaduct. Mm -hmm. So you destroy a community saying you're going to build this highway or this um, ramp, destroy the community, scatter black folk, and then after 40 years or 40 odd years, they're saying, oh, well, we're going to take down the viaduct. Right. And then... As part of the compensation, they're saying we're going to give money to the African-Canadian community in Vancouver to build a cultural center as a part of reparations. But now we're hearing that, oh, they're, they're said, oh it's, not only, it's not going to be just a center for black people. It's going to be a multicultural center. Everybody can use it. Now, bear in mind that there are no African-Canadian cultural center in, in, in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And this would have been a, a nice gesture. This would have been the right thing to do. But even they, they're pulling that away from the black community. Oh, it's going to be a, a center for everyone. And so we see the, the and I'm just going to use um, this phrase, phrase loosely, the Canadian state or people in power over and over um, again, time, time and time again, dispossessing black people and then um, compounding the injury, compounding the insults in greater ways, every time. And so today, what are the repercussions of this sort of intentional ignorance of, of our slavery past and of uh, the repercussions of having erased these, these thriving communities that uh, are now just a story, um, you know, and, and making some attempt sometimes to, like, like you said, uh, make a cultural center or, or whatever it is. What, what are the repercussions in, in terms of, you know, what we've been seeing in systematic racism, the, you know, violence of, of the police against uh, black people? Yes, every day, every day, you know, police violence, what, I mean, here in Halifax, for example, the police um, chief has brought in a, a well-known um, criminologist, Dr. Scott Wortley from the University of Toronto, to look at this whole issue of street checks. In Toronto, they call it card in, mm -hmm. in Halifax, they call it street checks, in which um, African Nova Scotians are disproportionately street checked. Mm -hmm. and, and for years, blacks in, in the province of Nova Scotia have been saying, look, we are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the street check. The police chief, he said, well, you know, we, I don't know that to be true. We have to do further inquiry. So they brought in an expert from, from Toronto. Meanwhile, street checks continue. Street checks continue to violate the black body in the city of Halifax. So when Dr. Wortley, he said it's going to take about three months, <coughs> um, completes his, his inquiry, then what? We see the bringing in of Dr. Wortley to Halifax as a, as a um, 
And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm making this clear. I'm not blaming Dr. Wortley. He's an expert in the field. They bring him in to do what they, you know, they want him to do. That's fine. But it's a stalling tactic as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. The, the municipality does not really want to deal with the issue of violence against black people. And it, ha- it you know, it, it, it's a daily thing. No, it's more... Um, amplified in the city of Toronto because it's a, it's a bigger population. You know, Toronto is Toronto. It makes the news all the time. But across the major cities in, in, in Canada, Halifax, Toronto, Montreal, Edmonton, you find um, Hamilton, Ottawa, you find um, the, the police violence against black people. But what we have to know is that constabularies were were created not to protect poor people or, or uh, racialized people. Constabularies were, if you look at the history of every constabulary force in the Western world, it, they came about to, to suppress poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Winnipeg General Strike, the, you know, how the, the, the RCMP was sort of fortified as a, as a result. You look at the the Sir George William University so-called uh, computer riot in 1969, out of which thesis, thesis came out of, of, of that riot because the RCMP was used to do spy work. Mm. And after that riot ended and, and they did their inquiry, said, look, the RCMP should not be a spy agency and thesis was created. But if, if I could link, you know, this phenomenon to slavery, um, Slavery, the enslavement of black people on this continent, as in Canada, um, meant that the, the discourse that was created around slavery to justify it was premised upon black inferiority and white supremacy. So the reason that you know black people we can enslave them is X, Y, and Z. They're they're inferior. They're meant to work. Even the Bible was used to justify slavery, the curse of Ham. Uh, Peter's letter to the, the Ephesians, I believe, slave obey your masters, etc., etc., etc. And so, even when slavery ended, the status of uh, the status of black people, the physical chains were taken off, obviously, but blacks were still relegated to um, to the, the margins. And and so, here in 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 or the older provinces, of course. Um, there was segregated schooling, segregated church. Um, blacks could not even go to high schools in, in some of our municipalities. So uh, a system, it became sy- sy- systemic black marginalization. It was woven into the system. It was part of the logic of the system within Canadian municipalities. Where you have any kind of black population, large, large, large or small. So you know, slavery set the stage for what's happening today, mm-hmm. for the black marginalization of today. And the, the oh, disrespect is not even the word, the disregard that, uh, um, in with, with which black people are treated and the disposability of black bodies is, is like common sense. Mm-hmm. And because this is a this is a magazine about Canadian cities, what can we do uh, at a municipal level? What can what can Canadian cities do to sort of uh, 
you know, take these issues on in, in, in the proper way? In some Canadian cities, what I see is that the developers are holding, are hijacking or have hijacked <laughs> the cities. I think there's a lot of corruption on city council, whichever city it is. Mm-hmm. You look at the case of Toronto, where they have bulldozed Regent Park. That's another um, subject we, we didn't speak to. They have bulldozed Regent Park. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have nice housing. We should have beautiful housing. They have put up you know, nice, nice houses, condominium-style housing. Um, but who who is coming? The people who were bulldozed and, and, and set adrift, are they coming back to Regent Park? A percentage of them are. Yes, I do know that. But Regent Park has been gentrified. You go down, there's a beautiful aquatic center. Why wasn't there an aquatic center before? Mm-hmm. So that kids could learn to swim and you know, and, and, and have their community guard. No, there's a beautiful aquatic center. There's a state-of-the-art um, health, health clinic. And, and you see that the yuppification of Regent Park. Uh, and, and, and all these nice, beautiful buildings are going up, but the people who were living there before have been, have been cast adrift. They're no longer there. And we see cities, cities like Toronto, certainly in Halifax too, where the developers are the ones, it, it seems to me, who have the say in what happens in the city in, in terms of urban development. And city council is just go, going along with it. And so poor people, <clears throat> and, and many of whom are racialized people, can no longer afford to live decently. When, this, when civil society becomes stronger, and when each voter, and when each constituent and knows that she has the power and can actually say to her elected official, no, you're there to work for me. You are supposed to work for me, not for the corporation, not for the the real estate developer. Then things will change. But many people are not feeling really empowered or feel that they can't. And, you know, I I can, I have also, I, I must also realize that many people who live in our municipalities are undocumented um, mm-hmm. people. They're not going to speak up because, you know, they fear that they, they would be deported. Or even if people have their, their, their proper papers, they are so beaten down, they're so afraid. The state has instilled a fear in us so much that people are, many people are afraid to speak out. In a summer where we set out to celebrate Canada's 150th anniversary, we ended up talking about a legacy of cultural genocide. This put some people on the defensive. And again, as the U.S. debates their statues honoring the lives of people who fought to uphold slavery, suddenly in Canada, we had to have a conversation about fatherly old Sir John A. Can we honor him as a father of confederation while still making amends for the atrocities he set in motion? When I was in my high school history class in the very small city of Kenora, we got brand new textbooks. Funny, then, that the teacher began by giving us printed handouts about residential schools, 
It seemed like he was going off script. I caught up with him this summer, and I asked him why he did this. He said there was scant reference to residential schools in the new text, and the Kenora area was site to two residential schools. Many of the lives of the students in my school would have been affected by them directly. So, the teachers in Kenora drew up their own lesson plan. If they hadn't, I don't know what kind of education I, in my position of white privilege, would have received about the real history of Canada. Would I have been made to care? So often, when we debate the honor we bestow on people who cause so much pain, who sent waves of systematic racism, discrimination, and disadvantage throughout our institutions, people argue that we can still celebrate the good and, and just teach the bad. But do we? Do we really? And who does the teaching? Because after 150 years, it's time this country and its cities admitted there are many, many Canadas. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your poetry club, your favorite historian, and your racist uncle just to mess with them. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make the show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track82, all spelled out. Hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, or tips on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. And just a heads up, our national issue is now on the shelf, so be sure to pick that up. And Popcan Crit is headed to Toronto October 27th. You can register through our website and check out our previous Popcan Crit two-parter podcast if you haven't already. Until next time, thank that high school teacher who did more than they were expected to. That's worth celebrating. Cheers. Cheers.